Welcome to episode 209 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And today, uh, our interview is going to be a joint venture with the American Bar Association's National Security Law Today podcast. we will be interviewing Michael Page, who's the policy and ethics advisor at OpenAI. But first, for the news roundup, we've got an all-star cast. We've got Ambassador Susan Esserman, who was Deputy U.S. Trade Representative and leads the international trade practice here at Steptoe to talk about the uh, uh, $60 billion in uh, retaliatory tariffs that the uh, president has announced. Uh, we've got Maury Schenk, uh, former managing partner of our London office, uh, to talk about uh, European and Chinese cybersecurity issues. We've got Jim Lewis, uh, Senior Vice President of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. We've got Jamil Jaffer, founder of the National Security Institute, adjunct professor at George Mason University, and a, uh, a man who's tiring just to follow in the newspaper. Uh, uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and holding the record for returning to Steptoe and Johnson to practice law more times than any other lawyer. We have more news than you can shake a stick at. Uh, Congress and the President are working overtime. Uh, um, among other things, uh, the Cloud Act, uh, which has been talked about, much talked about, including in a um, Supreme Court argument <clears throat> involving Microsoft and Ireland, uh, uh, just bang, uh, was dropped into law as part of the Omnibus uh, Appropriations Act. Uh, Maury, um, what does this mean for the United Kingdom and maybe for other countries? Well, it's a pretty significant change to the way the United States engages, particularly with favored trading partners. It gives the president new authority to negotiate mutual legal assistance agreements by executive order effectively. Uh, without a requirement of U.S. judicial review of foreign requests to the United States. Um, it does a couple of other things, which is it makes the Microsoft case moot by making orders under the Stored Communications Act effective regardless of the location of storage. And it allows uh, U.S. Um, US operators who receive a foreign, uh, foreign process, or sorry, who receive U.S. process under the Stored Communications Act to challenge it on the basis that they would be violating foreign law, but only if the president has uh, concluded one of these um, mutual legal assistance treaties um, with some specific provisions. So, and there's been a lot of, you know, a lot of commentary about this. Some people think it's a step forward in terms of international cooperation. Uh, the civil liberties people are concerned that it will allow foreign access to um, foreign orders for access to U.S data, which was different from their concern in the Microsoft case. It's a a pretty big change. It's a big win for justice, for sure, right? Because this uh, uh, takes this legal challenge off the table and essentially allows them to serve uh, discovery orders and wiretap orders for third parties on anybody they have jurisdiction over, any electronic communications provider they have jurisdiction over. So it's a big win for them. Pretty big win for Silicon Valley, which now gets to say to uh, countries that Insist, want to insist on uh, having uh, uh, cloud, a cloud of their own in their own territory, uh, that they can get stuff from the United States as well if they just negotiate a deal with the United States. Uh, um, it's an enormous loss for EFF and the ACLU who said that this was a, you know, the sky was going to fall, it was the end of the world, uh, um, people would be oppressed globally uh, uh, by virtue of this, and uh, Congress just ignored them and rolled on. Uh, uh, so that's that's how I read the uh, uh, the win loss record here. Yeah, I think that's about right. And uh, you know, there are people uh, on the far on the privacy advocates are strongly strong privacy advocates are strongly against this. But some fairly middle of the road people in the tech industry who uh, is not known for being right wing supports it, as you say. One thing I think is really interesting is this works. The framework that it sets up works best with countries where one of these agreements is in place, which are likely to be 
fairly friendly countries with the United States and will be somewhat dissuasive of storage by big tech companies in foreign jurisdictions that don't have one of these agreements. It puts a fair amount of weight on these agreements, and it'll be interesting to see how this president and future presidents uh, use this authority to negotiate the agreement. So here's my prediction. Uh, first, there's a lot of standards that have to be met here. Uh, um, we've taken a page from the EU's book, and we are uh, imposing our ideas of due process on the rest of the world if they want to share in our data. Uh, and then on top of it, there are some provisions that suggest that if you interfere with the U.S. ability to get this data, you're not going to get an agreement, which uh, uh, ought to be a worry for the EU with its uh, uh, use of data protection uh, as a way of trying to uh, impose its standards of due process on the United States. So um, uh, it means the U.S. has something to negotiate with uh, when GDPR uh, and its impact on law enforcement uh, gets discussed be, between the United States and uh, uh, the European Union. So should be entertaining. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, well, we've got a lot to cover uh, because Congress didn't just dump stuff into the omnibus bill. They uh, also passed legislation kind of like, you know, uh, in the ordinary course uh, following the regular order. It's sort of a surprise. Uh, uh, and what they passed is something called SESTA, FOSTA, but it's basically a uh, provision that knocks a hole in the Section 230 immunity that's been bedrock for social media uh, uh, since it passed in the 90s, uh, uh, saying essentially you can be held criminally liable uh, if you intentionally uh, foster uh, prostitution on your uh, social media uh, uh, platform. Uh, Jamil, uh, how big a deal is this? Well, look, Stuart, I mean, obviously it's a big deal uh, for a lot of these uh, providers um, and the entities that, that <clears throat> have these sites. Um, you know, this is not the first exception to Section th 230. Built into the original bill, the Communications Decency Act, were exceptions for child pornography and obscenity. Uh, so this is the latest sex trafficking. Um, but, of course, uh, we've seen the impact immediately. Craigslist shut down its entire personal section. Um, and, yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going to post stuff now. <laughs> So, you know, it's a challenge uh, for those providers um, and certainly something that uh, uh, caused some dispute between some of the big tech companies and some of these Silicon Valley uh, cloud and ISP type providers. Um, and so there's definitely a, a disagreement on this topic. Um, and is at it, the end of the day, basically a disagreement between people who can afford to hire a bunch of Filipinos to uh, review their content and people who can't. Well, it's certainly a, a debate about a, a debate between people who have the money to comply and those who don't. But also, I think it just uh, even for the people who have the money to comply, it's still another expenditure and something they had for a long time have been protected from um, and have been has allowed. I think some people, some have said, like EFF has said, has allowed the internet to flourish. Um, of course, in this area, it's allowed the internet to flourish to allow for sex trafficking. So Congress uh, reasonably unhappy. Yeah, uh, and my guess is. This is not the last of the new exceptions to Section 230. I, I, I've been saying for a while, you know, this is the magaziner consensus and it's over. Uh, and now it's over in the, in the land that gave it birth. Uh, it, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised. Surely Hollywood and the recording industry are enthusiastic about coming back and revisiting their ability to take down, uh, uh pirated, uh, uh material. Uh, and, you know, the Internet that flourished uh, used to be a thousand flowers blooming. Now it's two or three. And there's there's less enthusiasm for uh, continuing to fertilize those two or three. Well, I mean, I think you're right. And I think this is one of those challenges that we've talked about on other podcasts before where um, industry is now seeing its interests and the group's interests diverge. For a long time, industry and the privacy groups have been lockstep. But with the Cloud Act um, and with uh, with SESTA and FOSTA, you see uh, some at least some parts of industries interest diverging from the groups. I, I think that's right, and I think uh, we're seeing that the uh, the privacy groups aren't much without the the backing of big money from Silicon Valley, and even Sil Silicon Valley isn't quite what it used to be. It used to just say uh, um, we're the golden goose. Don't kill us. Uh, and uh, now people are saying, oh, at least we can, um, you know, get a few more eggs out of you. I mean, the tech lash is real. Yeah. But the, right. the other yep. side of that, Stuart, is that when will the U.S. Uh, open line catch up? 
uh, on this stuff. It would be and a so diplomatic we go around, position. Yeah, we're around saying the internet should remain open and free, and you know that's a nice line for 15 years ago, but. Yeah, so so Foggy Bottom gets the memo last, right? Yeah. Uh, 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 and they, <laughs> they they give up their illusions. I mean, this is an illusion. Uh, no one wants to give it up, and if the State Department gives it up, then we have to admit it's over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they aren't going to give it up easily. Well, the State Department and the whole Internet community. I, if I had a dollar for every time someone said the Internet should remain open and free, you know, I'd be in the Bahamas. Terrific with your own VC funds. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're right. Uh, it, we've got ten years of working out what it means to to lose the magazine of consensus, uh, and uh, um, it, we we need to think about it because we obviously aren't going to keep what we thought we had. Uh, both the economics and the law are against us, and the rest of the world is against it. But uh, figuring out then what U.S. interest is is harder. Okay, speaking of U.S. interests, uh, uh, the Trump administration, the president has a very clear idea what is U.S. interest, and he thinks that it uh, involves imposing $60 billion in tariffs on Chinese goods and threatening uh, um, new investment limitations, which he didn't define. Uh, um, Sue, uh, you uh, had a ringside seat for negotiations with China over uh, uh, intellectual property. This is an argument that uh, uh, they are not living up to their obligations under trade or intellectual property uh, agreements, uh, and we ought to whack them hard. um, As a professional in this field, what what strikes you about this proposal? Well, first, this is a very different approach than um, previous Republican and Democratic administrations have taken. And two, it's a very serious issue that the Trump administration is investigating, critical to the future of our technology um, and the future of our economy. I'd like to just quickly go through the the elements of what uh, the president and USTR announced. They announced plans to first impose massive retaliatory tariffs to the tune of $50 billion on China. Second, launch a formal case before the World Trade Organization against China. Third, impose investment restrictions. Um, the, the precise contours of that are not yet known. But these actions are in response to investigations and broad-based findings that China engaged in unreasonable and discriminatory practices by systematically forcing tech and IP transfer. The, so is, there, is, there, is there anybody who thinks they didn't? I, I think there's broad-based consensus that this is a serious problem and the difficulty has been that no U.S. company wanted to come forward to challenge China on this because they feared retaliation. Yes. So here, the USTR, with the support of the president, initiated the case because they wanted to draw attention to this and to the broad-based adverse impact that these practices would have on our U.S. economy. And they knew that it would be hard for U.S companies um, to come forward. And I'm glad you raised that, Stuart, because so much attention has been focused on the sanctions, um, but we really should not lose sight of the significance of the finding it is of interesting. the Chinese I mean, regime. If, if, if any other, as you said, it, this is something that other administrations haven't done, but other administrations, if they'd done it, would have been treated seriously. Uh, uh, this just goes into the Trump bad uh, uh, protectionist uh, uh, news cycle, and, and uh, there isn't any serious debate about it. It's just more evidence that he's an evil uh, uh, imposter. Um, and uh, Hey, whose side are you on? <laughs> <laughs> well, but well, I, 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 on this one, I think he, um, I, what he's doing is probably what we would have to do to get China's attention. Uh, you agree, Jim? Yes. I'm not sure. 100% I agree with that, but I would say this. The investigation is extremely important strategically, and I just want to go through what they found. They found that in order for U.S. companies 
to invest or engage in certain business activities in China. U.S. companies are forced to pressure or surrender their technology to Chinese companies or the Chinese government. Second, the Chinese technology licensing rules discriminate against foreign companies. Third, that Chinese strategically directs and it, and it uh, supports investments to acquire U.S. technology. And finally, that China continues its long-standing practice of conducting and supporting cyber theft of U.S. trade secrets. Boy, I could have made that longer. You, know, okay. it, it, you, you can't get competition authority approval from the Chinese without uh, surrendering to whoever the uh, the local champion is, either IP or market share or something of the sort. Uh, uh, they, they could have made that a whole lot longer. Well, it was a couple hundred page report, so it was uh, quite long and included those kinds of practices. Now, just going back to the proposed sanctions, the administration uh, proposed imposing an additional 25% tariffs on Chinese imports worth $50 billion a year. So 25% doesn't strike me as market prohibitive in a lot of cases. They'll, they'll just they'll raise the price some, they'll eat some, and keep selling, won't they? Well, it depends on the competition right. that these uh, uh, exporters face from other countries. But I, I, I guess the point that I wanted to make is $50 billion of goods, that's retaliation that is orders of magnitude greater than any previous retaliation ever by any And it's government. almost, it's certain to be challenged at the WTO and highly problematic under the WTO, isn't it? It's lawful under the U.S. Um, US um, 301 law, but yes, it is likely to be uh, challenged under the WTO. And actually, for this reason, it's important to say that not only is this massive proposed retaliation, but it is the first time in 25 years that the U.S. has um, proposed and looks like it's going to happen, imposed in, uh, import restrictions since really the establishment of the, of the WTO. So it's uh, what this means is you can buckle up. There's a trade war coming. Also a trade negotiation. I predict that uh, there's going to be a lot of tweaking of this as allies come in and saying, well, we we provided 90% of the value of something that was processed in China. Please don't impose that uh, duty on us. Uh, as the Chinese say, well, look, we, we, we're, we're making progress. Please uh, reduce the impact of this. We're going to see a whole bunch of negotiations. Uh, if, if the administration were not sure, so short-handed, uh, uh, I'd have more confidence that we'd be able to do fine-tuned negotiations. I'm a little worried about that. Well, I, I think you're right to worry about it. Um, second, I think there's been very little engagement with China by the U.S. trade representative. And the question is, here is how do you engage the Chinese to make a strategic change? And that is what this government is after. Yep. Uh, well, it's going to be interesting. Uh, he's put a whole bunch of chips on black and given the wheel a spin, we'll see how it goes. Uh, all right. Uh, speaking of China and uh, the U.S. government uh, uh, having it in for them, the FCC apparently is coming up with a rule. Uh, uh, Jim, this was covered in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, uh, the plan is to say you can't buy Chinese telecommunications uh, infrastructure gear if you're taking universal service funding, which most people take, uh, to, to, um, uh, to buy it. It shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that if you buy equipment from China, you're increasing the risk of uh, Chinese surveillance. They'd like to do in the U.S. what they do in their own country. Um, the problem is we may not have a choice at some point because there's only a couple struggling European manufacturers. We managed to lose our telecom industry uh, a few years ago, so... Um, nice. well, interestingly, uh, Nortel, which was kind of quasi-U.S., yeah. uh, was uh, kind of the poster child for people who've been totally pwned by uh, uh, Chinese um, uh, cyber espionage. And they sat on Nortel's networks for years, siphoning off all the IP that uh, Nortel was able to create in its final days there. But the, 
it's a good defensive measure. It's good to do this, but we got to think how do we get out of the trap? And that means your choices are either um, buy from China or build somewhere else. And that might just be too hard for us. It remains to be seen because yeah. you're going to have to spend a lot of money if you're serious about this. Yeah, this is this is an expensive fight that we have, have yeah. picked for sure. Okay, um, Iranian hackers charged and sanctioned by the U.S. government. Didn't I read this story like a month ago? What uh, 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 the uh, uh, Jamil? Uh, uh, what's different here? Well, I mean, this time, 31 terabytes, 144 U.S. universities, 3.4 billion dollars in intellectual property. Another 176 universities around the country, around the world, I should say, in 21 countries. Uh, so this time, nine individuals, nine Iranian individuals. Uh, an organization called the Mabna Institute, um, you know, uh, targeting U.S. government agencies too, Department of Labor, FERC. Um, so a lot going on here. Obviously, we've also now sanctioned uh, 19 Russians, five groups for cyber hacking. So the administration is getting more aggressive in its use of sanctions, uh, building on what the Obama administration did previously um, in this space. Uh, but a lot more to do here, obviously. Um, we've long known about Chinese IP theft. Um, we knew the Iranians were working on attacking our systems. We heard about the DDoS attacks against the banks. We've heard about the attempts to infiltrate that New York dam. Um, we've heard about the efforts against uh, Las Vegas Sands Corporation. Uh, intellectual property theft has, has always been part of that. Now it's clear that we're, we plan to take action. Again, you know, unclear that anybody will actually be arrested, unclear that anybody will be prosecuted, but we're putting people on notice. We have charges. We will bring them. Uh, taking other action at some point, though, too, uh, like the sanctions action was taken today, uh, needs to be part of it because indictments alone won't solve the problem. So this is getting to be like our one of our first um, uh, weapons when we discover a, a hacking attack that has um, state si- uh, signatures. Uh, Jim, do you think uh, it should be? Yeah, Justice loves uh, indictments, and the five PLA officers a few years ago it was a successful thing, and they hope they can use it uh, the same way against Russia and Iran. You have to do something to push back, and if there's another area of consensus, at least in the military and intelligence communities, is that we're going to have to push back against our opponents, and sanctions are one way to push back. They're a good start. But they're only a start. So yeah. the question is, what next? That is the question. Uh, well, we'll put them in a uh, an Uber self-driving car and give them a spin around uh, Arizona. Uh, uh, Jamil, I, I think everybody saw that uh, uh, that clip. Um, and increasingly, there are voices saying um, Uber's self-driving technology really screwed up here. Right? Uh, you you agree with that? Well, Stuart, you know, it's, it's hard to know. We don't know exactly what happened and, and why the accident happened. I think that uh, folks that have seen the video have said that it would have been hard even with a, with a, with a, with a you know, a human driver. Um, the shadows were difficult. That being said, you know, but we that's have... That's what LIDAR is for, though, well, right? No, fair, fair. But look, you know, uh, 2016, 37,000 uh, traffic deaths in America, about 11.6 per 100,000 people. Last year, 2017, 40,000 deaths. Mm-hmm. We regularly put... 3,000-pound cars in the hands of very flawed individuals, drunk, you know, uh, tired, uh, irritated, in a bad mood. And those people hit other cars and hit people, and people die. So car deaths are not unusual. The question is, do you get more or less car deaths uh, with uh, automated systems that have LiDAR? And there's no doubt you'll have deaths uh, when it comes to uh, cars and the use of cars on the road. The only question is, do you get more or less uh, with self-driving cars? And my instinct, and again, I... Could, will it be proven wrong? My instinct is you're going to get a lot less deaths when you're not putting ha- cars in the hands of drunk drivers, people are people that are high, um, people that are angry, um, and people that are uh, distracted. Yeah, I, all, all, all true, but that's if the self-driving technology is properly designed. And what I worry about here is that uh, uh, maybe Uber was rushing to try to catch up uh, – and may have uh, cut some corners. And if, if they did, we'll find out about it. Uh, uh, and that will produce a new regulatory enthusiasm, I think, in this area. And, and it, the assumption that, well, at Silicon Valley, it's bound to be better than what we have is, is under considerable pressure. It is, although I would say in this space, it is, it is almost certainly better than what we have because what we have today are people we know are incapable of making good decisions behind the wheel. Here, you might have computer errors, you might have radar errors, but you don't have people who we know for sure shouldn't be behind the wheel, regularly behind the wheel, 
texting, driving, drinking, you name it. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and I can't believe we've gotten to this far and we haven't even said Facebook, Cambridge Analytica. Uh, it shows how much news there was. Uh, I, I don't know about you. Uh, I, I think the most newsworthy thing about this is that uh, in 2012, when the Obama administration did exactly the same thing and bragged about it, everybody said, oh, congratulations, Mr. President. And this yeah, time... The campaign. Yes, the campaign. Uh, and this time, Cambridge Analytica pretends that it did this, and there's some real doubt about whether they actually did anything. Uh, uh, and uh, the Justice Commissioner of the European Union says, this is a threat to democracy, which tells you everything you need to know about how privacy law will be administered uh, uh, when they uh, uh, get uh, uh, GDPR in place. It will be administered to make sure that a threat to democracy or maybe a threat to Democrats is never allowed again uh, uh, to uh, uh, to darken our future. Um, uh, that's that. Uh, that so I, I, Facebook is going to get piled on. I'm not even sure I see a what what they did wrong here. Uh, maybe they should not have uh, agreed to let this researcher use it. Maybe they should have been more aggressive about trying to catch people uh, who were misusing the data that uh, this guy legitimately collected. But uh, um, uh, for this to be the thing that trips up Facebook strikes me as weird beyond belief. But you gotta, you got to put it in context, Stuart, and it gets back to the discussion we had of the decline of the magazine or consensus where in 2012 people still kind of believed all this nonsense about the internet and its wonderfulness and nowadays that's kind of tattered even before this facebook stuff came out so expect more pressure the idea that i'm going to take your data and i'll do with it whatever i want to make money and you'll be happy it's not a it's not a bad trade i'm not sure people know about it but when it's used for political purposes you get people who are upset fair enough so I this, don't think people this, this, fully I should track. say this is this is Harvey Rishikoff who has parachuted into our news roundup ahead of time uh, and cannot <laughs> cannot uh, resist popping off. Uh, uh, so Harvey, what 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 were your views again? I apologize. I didn't realize the rules of engagement. Uh, but uh, what I was saying is, I think for the third parties who had their information scraped unaware and did not realize the terms of service of agreement allow that to take place is part of the issue of what true consent is in the context of what your information is and how it's going to be used. Well, yes, except those people don't even know what harm or if they suffered any harm. They don't even know who they are. Well, but this is an interesting point that Harvey raises, which is people do have this instinctive sense that there's some problem with this large amount of data collection taking place by all these providers. Yet, I, I'm not sure I agree with Harvey that people don't know. I think people know. I think when you get an right. ad in your Gmail for the Bahamas because you've been planning a Bahamas trip, you get that they're looking at your email, right? It's just you don't care, but you only care when it's when you when you perceive it to have been misused in a way you didn't expect it to be, and then you've got a complaint. Yet we regularly click on our phones, yes, let them have access to my location data, you name it, have it. Um, and so I think that is part of the challenge. Um, and I think Jim is right that part of this goes back to that, whether that consensus is breaking down. But then the question becomes – what you do with it, because consumers can vote with their feet. They're just not doing it. Fair enough. I, and I look, I'm not going to carry water for uh, social media. There, there, there's room for regulation for sure. Uh, uh, and looking at what they're doing with their ad policies and, frankly, what they're doing to discriminate against uh, uh, viewpoints that, that are legal but that they don't like, which is like – basically the Republican Party, uh, worth looking at uh, uh, because they are now in charge of our uh, national dialogue. So it's interesting that you think regulation is necessary here. I actually, actually would push back a little bit on that, too. And I think what I would say here is, you know, it's interesting about this this large amount of data that wa- that went out the back door, right? You know, there's this whole debate, was is it a breach, is it not a breach, was it intended use? Well, if you're letting 50 million users worth of data out the back door for, what was it, 100 grand that, mm-hmm. came, that the researcher paid, that's a business mistake. That's not even a, 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 you know, a, a privacy and civil liberties violation. That's a, you have a lot of valuable data. This is literally your business. Right. So So I'm not sure regulation solves the problem. I actually think understanding their own business better and understanding what was happening and how it might be utilized is really what Facebook needs. And that's part of the challenge here. I, I, my worry here is if we say you can't give this to third parties, we're basically saying, 
big social media. We want you to be bigger and we want you to do more to influence our dialogue without us having the slightest clue what you're doing because it all happens in-house. YouTube just just decided to ban gun demonstration uh, uh, videos, so so, uh, gun tutorials. because, well, because they don't, just don't like guns, right? So those people have nowhere to go. They're apparently going to Pornhub, I, I understand, to, to release their videos, which I, you know, I have to say, when I grew up, it was um, a commonplace for people to say, well, I, I really only read Playboy for the articles. Now you can say, oh, well, I only go to Pornhub for the gun instructional videos. Uh, but, you know, uh, we do have a problem with the dialogue that we're being allowed to uh, uh, to carry out uh, when people like uh, companies like Lyft are in bed with the Southern Poverty Law Center. I mean, really, uh, there's there's no no worse scam than the SPLC. Uh, and, uh, uh, and Lyft seems to think uh, they should be denying people service based on whether the SPLC thinks they're an extremist. In some ways, this is a reaction to going way too far in the other direction. I was talking to the head of the French agency that does network security. They were hacked by the Russians. The Russians tried to influence their election. I said, how come it didn't work? And he said, well, you know, we we still have a stronger relationship, and we went around and briefed the companies. And and his deputy chimed in and and says, yeah, and we don't have Fox News. So you have a, yeah, a generation of, of nonsense coming from one side of the political spectrum, and now there's going to be a reaction, and they're just going to have to take their lumps. I hope they like Pornhub. <laughs> okay, well, that's what that is uh, uh, what's going to happen. And um, my rant about uh, YouTube and uh, uh, Lyft uh, has a uh, uh, a an analog in China, which has also said, you know, if you are engaged in wrong think, we're not going to let you on uh, uh, public transportation because we're going to use our uh, uh, social credit scoring to decide who can use the trains and the buses. Uh, uh, Maury, you looked at this. This has been in the works a while, uh, but now the policies are becoming a little bit clearer. Yeah, I mean, they're saying from May 1st that it will be officially applied, although it's clear anecdotally that already people are losing access to rights if they don't have the right social credit. And maybe if they don't, you know, if they're linked up to people who aren't the right people, as Mara Fistendahl reported on the podcast in January. The thing that's interesting to me about this, as you know, I spend time as a private equity investor in China. And China is, you go there, it's super capitalist. And they, the economy is juiced by the kind of protectionism that we were talking about in the 301 context and financial control industrial strategy. But the weakness that we were, you know, worried about from a pure investor perspective a few years ago was, um, can the Communist Party maintain control? And this social credit system is like, uh, the Communist Party's wet dream. It's a perfect, it's better than, uh, 1984. It's a perfect self-enforcing system of control which I think raises serious questions about whether totalitarian capitalism like in China is going to continue to perform a lot better than Western democratic capitalism, and what do we do about that? Yeah, fair enough. And I should say that uh, the last time we talked about this, uh, one of our uh, listeners wrote in to say that there's a great Black Mirror episode about social credit scoring in which this woman uh, um, uh, is – Living for what her score is uh, on the phone and um, uh, through a series of uh, unfortunate events starts rapidly losing social credit, can't get a car, can't uh, uh, do a whole bunch of things. Uh, so if, uh, for our listeners, uh, if you haven't seen Black Mirror, you ought to go at least look up that episode. Uh, uh, and what I thought was interesting, and I, you see this with Silicon Valley and shadow banning is often you don't know exactly where the line is and you don't even often know exactly how you ended up being penalized. And that lack of certainty leads everybody to step way back from the line so that they don't have any problems and can be sure they're not going to have any problems. So, yes, I think I agree with you, Maury. All right. Uh, I'm going to have to cut it off here because um, uh, 
First, uh, uh, Harvey Rishikoff can't go five minutes without expressing a view, so I know he's, he's due, uh, and we need to move to our, uh, uh, our interview. Uh, we're going to be doing this interview with Harvey and the uh, hosts of the National Security Law Today team, which is organized by the uh, ABA's National uh, Standing Committee on Law and National Security. It's going to be an interview with Michael Page, who is the Policy and Ethics Advisor at OpenAI, a Silicon Valley uh, uh, NGO. Uh, and so without further ado, let's turn to Harvey, to Michael Page, and to Elisa, the uh, uh, anonymous or quasi-anonymous uh, host of National Security Law Today. All right, and uh, um, we are so lucky to be here. We're from National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. That's not enough to say. Let's just say that we are particularly pleased to be joining and doing this podcast together with Cyber Law Podcast, and that many of us are huge fans of your podcast, Stuart. And we're especially honored that we're going to have a guest like Michael Page from OpenAI. But I will say, as you know, I've spent a career correcting your legal and policy judgment, stewards, and I'm looking forward to doing this during this podcast. And I'm particularly pleased that Michael is going to discuss his understanding of where we're going with artificial intelligence. And I might add that the ABA just co-sponsored an AI and machine learning conference with Ohio State this weekend which he brought together about 10 or 12 extraordinary experts to discuss the policy and legal frameworks. And I'm looking forward to hearing Michael's take on the issue. So why don't we jump right in and ask Michael to uh, explain who he is and uh, what OpenAI is. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, OpenAI is a nonprofit research organization uh, based in San Francisco that focuses directly on building and or helping other like-minded, goal-aligned organizations build safe and broadly beneficial, uh, what we're going to call artificial general intelligence. And I'd like to unpack that later. It's a bit of a hot-button word with a lot of baggage associated with it. Um, So it's mostly a technical organization, although it does have some policy strategy component to it, um, and I'm in that latter component. and if, if I, you, when I met you in the elevator, you said that you are a recovering lawyer. I am a recovering lawyer, which is a, almost a recovering Connecticut Avenue lawyer. A, <laughs> I, I was at uh, Williams and Connolly, uh, so not quite on Connecticut Avenue, but close. Uh, but yes, I'm a recovering lawyer, which I think has absolutely nothing to do with what I currently do. Although sometimes there are useful, useful examples of how people shouldn't behave, and, and that provides a, a fertile, uh, you know, area for anecdotes. So how did you get from there to here? Uh, it's, it's a bit of a circuitous story. Uh, I went through Oxford. Uh, I met a bunch of people who were looking at how emerging technologies might impact the long-run future, became interested in AI, um, and I learned there is this uh, niche, which was basically uh, an aggregator of experts uh, on AI that people, not enough people were filling. Um, and so that's what I view my job as. I'm a bit of an aggregator of experts, and I try to focus on the big picture to predict where we might make mistakes by not being sufficiently thoughtful about where this technology might go. So, Michael, um, I, I assume you meant Oxford. Uh, is that Oxford, Mississippi, or the other Oxford? Uh, it is the and other. It is the I, other Oxford. Okay, and I guess the other question is, um, what exactly? We call this the Geek Wonk Bridge. So, can you explain a little bit what you think you're doing at AI and what your role, in particularly, is on a day-to-day basis? Sure. Um, so I, I'm not a machine learning expert. I eat lunch with machine learning experts, and so that's about the extent of my expertise. Um, I, I can I can make it up a bit, um, and I can explain in some general terms how this works. Um, mostly what I do on a day-to-day basis is I, I try to understand um, everything that is currently happening in AI, <laughs> um, everything that might be happening in the next 5, 10, 15, or 20 years. I look at what major actors, and the major actors include uh, key research organizations like Google, OpenAI, Facebook, Microsoft, uh, state actors. I look at what they're currently doing, and I think, okay, if they were if they were thinking about what their actions might uh, do to the world 15, 20 years from now, would they be doing those same things? Um, and sometimes the answer is, I don't know. But sometimes the answer is, actually, wait, here's a failure I think that they're going to make, and I think I have evidence for why they might make that failure. Well, before we get to that, though, we do have some listeners who are less initiated. So why don't we talk about exactly what 
AI is to begin and begin to sort of unpack what its ingredients are? Sure. Um, so very, again, with the caveat that uh, my expertise is that I, I eat lunch with experts, um, and you can you can broadly say uh, you know AI is software, um, and you know there are two types of AI software. Um, there is what you might call you know hard coded or symbolic AI software, where you're basically just uh, encoding human knowledge uh, in software. You know this is what the AI that you know first beat the best chess players uh, in the 90s was Deep Blue. Um, a, another kind of AI uh, is based on machine learning, um, and this is basically just statistics. Um, it's, it's an algorithm that learns based on the data that you give it. Um, so you might give it a bunch of pictures of cats and dogs, um, and then you give it a goal, which is called a loss function, um, and it basically tries to predict whether a, a picture that's not in the training distribution, a new picture, is either a cat or a dog based upon the labeled cats and dogs in the training set. Uh, and if it gets it wrong, it tries to correct the parameters uh, to do better the next time. You keep doing that over and over and over again, and eventually you get an algorithm with parameters that are designed to recognize cats rather than dogs when you give them a new picture. So it's trial and error, evolutionary, essentially. Yes, and there, and there, there are different strategies. And there's a, a different uh, kind of cousin of, of the latter thing I described um, called reinforcement learning. Um, and uh, there are different ways to train reinforcement learners, uh, some of which are called evolutionary strategies. And, and I'd be happy to chat more about that because it's, it's a pretty interesting topic. Uh, and, and there are plausible paths toward pretty powerful AI in the future. Yeah, and um, it's basically... <laughs> It's best at finding solutions that its human programmers didn't anticipate. Uh, the evolutionary strategies, mm -hmm. in particular, um, I think there are. I mean, ideally, we want to have AI systems that can solve problems that humans can't solve. Um, and related, but different from that, is the risk that they will do. Uh, they will solve the problem in a way the human wouldn't want them to solve. Uh, and so we can we can we can distinguish uh, a technology that can do what humans can't from a technology that will make a mistake that humans didn't foresee. So I, I, I'm interested in this because there was just a paper that came out that had like 30 surprising and slightly cheaty ways in which AI solved uh, uh, problems. Uh, the one I remember that I understand is they had a uh, sort of infinite tic-tac-toe uh, uh, game where you're trying to get five X's or O's in a row, and the the machine won the game by positing a uh, move that was like four trillion squares away from where it started and forced the other uh, AI machine that it was operating against to try to calculate all of the uh, possible moves between the two places that it had uh, put its Xs, and it basically fell over. Uh, the, the machine crashed, and the other uh, <laughs> AI won by default, so right. it was a forfeit. Uh, but... Uh, that kind of thing that, that we would all call cheating, uh, but which the machine obviously doesn't know is cheating, is surprisingly common in this field. Yeah, it, I think absolutely. And this, this is a, um, a, a rich topic. And so I would love to talk more about this. I don't know if we want to dive into this now. Um, but this is, again, what makes uh, potentially even more powerful systems both very capable and uh, very concerning if we're, if we're not uh, careful to make sure that they don't make catastrophic uh, mistakes. Um, if you take a system like Deep Blue and you and you give it uh, human-inspired heuristics for how to play chess, you're gonna, probably going to be able to like, generally get a sense of the strategy it's employing. Um, but if you don't do that, if you if you take a system like AlphaGo, the one that DeepMind uh, created, which is based on uh, machine learning, deep deep reinforcement learning, um, it, it's not learning based on at least the, the newer version is not learning based on how humans play go um, so it might develop entirely foundationally different strategies for go um, and for go you know that the game is limited you know only such you know it's not going to just change the game the game the game is part of the the domain in which it's operating um, but if you give it a problem in a less limited domain um, then you might not like the surprising solutions that the system developed. Uh, and the more powerful full and more autonomous the system is, the harder it's going to be to predict the solution that it 
concludes, based on the data you gave it, is the most efficient way of accomplishing its objective. Or even to figure out what the hell it's doing, right? The, you, 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 uh, there are increasing problems with the people who started these machines running, uh, seeing that it's arrived at a solution, but not quite understanding uh, what the solution is or what's driving it. Yeah, so there's a difference between the... the so humans can set the loss function, the objective, at, at whatever they want. Um, and you can have a, a set loss function, like correctly identify a cat or, or get the highest score uh, in, in a video game. Um, or you can have a more complicated one, like have uh, humans approve the thing that you did. And this is actually a technique that people at uh, DeepMind and OpenAI are working on to try to make sure that some of these uh, accidents you described don't happen. So this is you know, human feedback objective. Um, but um, separate from that is, is the question of um, interpretability, actually knowing uh, why the system uh, reached the conclusion that it did. So you might train a system to predict whether somebody should be like released on bail or get parole, for example. And this is where a lot of the bias concerns manifest. Um, and you, you feed it a lot of data about the types of people that end up, you know, doing bad things if they're released on parole. Um, and, you know, the computer spits out uh, an answer, you know, release on parole. And it might be hard to, to, to interrogate that answer. You know, why did you reach that conclusion? Um, and you can get the same thing with the cat and dog classification system. It could be that the system calls something a cat that's actually a dog, and you're not really sure why that happened. Um, and in general, disentangling uh, how these uh, deep learning systems reach their conclusions is very hard. But there is a line of active research on this. Uh, a friend of mine, Chris Ola, uh, there's a recently a New York Times article about his work, is doing really interesting work on this, where you can actually uh, scan around on pictures of cats and dogs, uh, and it will and it will show you uh, what the neural net under underneath it um, is is doing with the information that you focused on. So you can focus on just like the ear, and it can say. Uh, this is how, you know, this ear gives us this amount of information as a cat versus a dog. So that does some work towards solving this interpretability problem and making the system a bit less opaque. So I, I so would Michael, what, what, oh, Mike, I guess one of the questions I hate to get you off there is that the system is very good where its set rules are, are stated, like the games of Go or uh, Tic-Tac-Toe. So there's clear rule definition, and you're saying that's where AI is showing its uh, promise. I guess the other issue which your answer sort of um, raised was in the example of whether or not you're going to give parole, you can have correlations uh, for activities when it looks at the analysis of the individual and what they've done and how they conducted themselves. But the issue that many of us are looking at in this space is how the AI will exercise discretion. When will AI decide that it's time to break the rule uh, as opposed to follow it in order to have a better outcome. What are your thoughts on that? So I, I think discretion is a concept that's hard to cash out in terms of AI systems. Um, and so that, that maybe is, is uh, you know, we would need to decide what uh, objective we're going to give the system, what we're going to ask it to do. Um, if there's something that we want to call discretion that we want humans to do on top of whatever output the system gives us, then we should make sure that's part of the process. Um, there might be more advanced systems that we can train to basically understand what kinds of things humans would want to do with that discretion. Um, so, you know, when you look at sentencing, for example, and a, and a judge decides, okay, you know, here's the range in which I can sentence somebody, uh, I'm going to I and the judge might have intuitions about, oh, this person really doesn't deserve the harsh sentence because they seem like a good person, they're young, whatever. Uh, you, if you just get enough examples like that, you can cash that out in terms of actual data about the types of things that warrants a judge to want to be lenient. Um, so in theory, AI can do that. Uh, the problem is we don't actually know why it's doing that. We might not trust that it's doing the thing that humans do. Um, so one way we can solve that is we can have a system that basically advises us on the you know discretion of leniency and sentencing. Um, and then we can have humans say, oh, that was a, a, a good use of discretion or a bad use of discretion, and then train a system to basically be able to predict what a good judge would do under those circumstances. Well, it sounds like a lot of this, though, uh, what the results are from any AI process really depends on the values that are set by human beings, some of which are abstract. And that also depends on a sort of collective understanding of that value system. And right now there is some talk, and there's been a proposed bill to set up a government-wide 
AI policy without too much further definition. Uh, Bill didn't seem to address appropriations or anything of the kind. It really was looked a bit like a, a legislative amoeba. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I don't have strong thoughts on that. I mean, th there are a lot of um, claims for, for national policies on AI, and, and I think it's for the most part, it's, it's not that. I think the things that people are suggesting doing are pretty pretty reasonable. I don't really care if we call it a national policy on AI. Um, I, there are a bunch of problems that need to start being addressed. Uh, I think addressing them with a holistic view is good. Um, but whether we have some, we have, whether we have a document that's called the national policy on AI doesn't seem that important to me. And can we cycle, you know, for sake of the national security law aspect of this, what do you think are the bigger sort of national security concerns, in your opinion, uh, about AI, and how do they, how do your, how do your views consider the fact that there there are international malicious actors yeah. who would exploit the development of AI in a, in a harmful way, at least to the United States? Yeah, it's, it's it's a great question. So this is this is why I want to back up a minute and say. So my my job is is basically to try to increase the probability that uh, the transition to a world with very powerful AI goes well for everyone. That's that's my job description. Um, <laughs> it's a bit it's a bit vague um, and a bit ambitious. Um, but that's you know that includes the whole world. It doesn't just include Americans. Um, and uh, my guess right now uh, is that. Uh, in the transition to a world with more and more powerful AI, we're going to have an endless series of increasingly difficult um, global coordination problems. Um, and I can give examples of types of things I expect might happen. Um, and, in a, in a, uh, and, and to add one more kind of abstract element to this puzzle, um, I view this as a very non-zero-sum game um, for people who like game theory. Um, that means it could be positive sum, we create a lot of value and everybody can win, uh, or it can be negative sum, uh, meaning we all shoot each other in the foot uh, and we're all unhappy. Um, and in a non-zero sum game, uh, you can get value via coordinating. I mean, this is what this is what civilization is. This is what we've done to get to where we are today. Um, and the problem with uh, any framing of this question that assumes a constant amount of adversarialism um, is that you're forgetting that the amount of adversarialism might be one of the biggest levers that we have uh, in solving this problem going forward. So I think there are very real threats from other states, from, from rogue actors. Um, I'm not naive. I think that's worth taking those seriously. At the same time, I think one of the most important things we can do is think about the positive sum possibilities here and look for ways to be able to coordinate with potential actors, even if we don't like them that much right now, because we will need to if we all want to win uh, going through this process. So could you give us some examples? Yeah. Um, so uh, we've talked a lot about uh, safe, some of the safety failures. Uh, for example, um, you, you have a, a, big, a big system, um, but a big, I mean, lots of computing power. Um, and the bigger the system, the uh, more general and autonomous it can be. Um, and we can unpack those terms a little bit. So if, if a system can uh, just identify cats and dogs, uh, it's got a very narrow function. Um, and uh, as, you know, it's a system trained on supervised learning, uh, labeled structured data sets. Um, in deep reinforcement learning, which is mostly what um, OpenAI, my organization, works on, um, what you're often doing is training algorithms that can play video games. Um, and you can train an algorithm to play uh, a particular video game, or you can have an algorithm that can play any video game. Um, and one that can do the latter is, is more general than one that can do the former. Um, and an algorithm that can recognize cats and dogs and uh, translate speech is more general than one that can only do one of those things. Uh, and generality is important because many problems require understanding across multiple domains to be able to solve them. Um, and uh, humans are exceptionally good at this. We, you know, at least according to us, you know, we're not really sure what it would look like to be even more general. But, you know, we, we can recognize cats, we can understand speech, we can play video games. Um, so one domain is generality, another domain is autonomy. Um, autonomy is basically the, the number of steps that you can uh, take to accomplish an objective. Uh, so if your objective is, you know, walk to the bathroom, you need to figure out how to walk out of this room, how to, you know, walk down the hall, how to open the door. Maybe you can do it in like 15 steps. In computer language, you, you just call these time steps. They're actually just different units. They're discrete. Um, and a, a system that can uh, accomplish a goal using many time steps uh, can accomplish much harder goals, uh, as you can imagine. If the, if the goal is, uh, you know, end climate change, 
Um, well, that's going to take a lot of steps and probably take a lot of generality. Um, and you know, the, these are the types of systems that eventually we should be able to build. When when is is very uncertain. There are different paths to them. Um, but a system with that amount of generality and autonomy is going to have massive risks along the lines we discussed. Um, we it, could, it could decide that a lot fewer human beings would end climate change. Yeah, and uh, so in, to, to, to be clear, yeah, so, so one thing I always push back on is um, people anthropomorphizing these systems. I mean, I think th- th- these are algorithms that are, that are you know, accomplishing a task that, that we give them, um, but they might be accomplishing, and there's, so there's nothing nefarious going on. They're not changing their goals. Um, but still, nonetheless, uh, they're not going to do these things in human-like ways. Um, and so you'd clearly say, as a parameter, uh, don't kill all the humans en route to your goal. But there are uh, you know, a million other things, and that's an understatement, um, that we wouldn't want the system to do. And it's probably going to be hard for us to anticipate all of those things in advance. Um, and so formalizing all the things that we wouldn't want the system to do in pursuit of solving climate change is going to be very, very hard. Um, and so the, the the nightmare scenario, and this is this is probably just one of many, but it's like a nice concrete one that we can focus on, um, is that eventually there are going to be systems uh, that can do useful things, um, but to to make them, uh, we're going to need to spend a lot of time making them safe. And so there's going to be this trade-off between the speed at which you can develop this system, or the capabilities that you can use the system for, and the safety of that system. And in an adversary- this is just like quantum computing. You, you spend all your time doing error correction. Well, yeah, I mean, we'd want so yeah. Before we we deploy a system to solve climate change, I'd want us to spend a whole lot of time doing error correction. Uh, and I think we can all agree. Um, so the, the nightmare scenario is uh, party A. Uh, is developing a system that you know would, would harm Party B, uh, and we can, we, can, we can give these state names. But we don't need to, uh, and and Party B is doing the opposite, um, and so they're in basically an arms race. Uh, and if you're in an arms race, uh, the last thing you want to do is have a trade-off between speed on the one hand and safety on the other, because then you get this race to the bottom dynamic, um, and this can so be Michael, catastrophic. Yeah, sorry. No, that's it. Uh, one of the issues. Um, that we are confronting in our national security space is referred to as the intelligization of warfare, that we're really trying to use as much smart data to help us guide us in the projection of lethality. And as you know, there's a lot of debate going on concerning autonomous weapon systems and whether or not there should be a, a, a person in the loop, a person over the loop, or no and I'm curious as to where you see this debate breaking as the intelligence and the data gets more and more sophisticated so that we can have armed drones that will be able to identify pictures of lawful targets and whether or not uh, there will have to be a human in the loop in order for the decision to be made to use the lethality. Uh, I'm not going to have a particularly enlightening answer to that. Uh, this is this is not an area in which I focus. Um, I think there's some some difficult trade-offs here. Um, I my my guess is the the human in the loop, human not in the loop framing is is a, is a confused one. Um, uh, as I, as I mentioned, there are ways to train systems that functionally have humans in the loop. They have humans in the, in the training loop, um, and this is what the human feedback uh, training process is all about. Um, and, uh, and and so so I think separate from humans in the loop, you can have a question of okay, how, how much autonomy should you give a system? Should you should you give it the ability to uh, you know come up with military strategy uh, or just execute a very narrow function? Um, this is going to be a, a question of like very very difficult line drawing, um, and I think this is going to require and this is another race to the bottom dynamic. Um, we're, we're all going to be better off um, if if we're not using this technology in every possible military way. Um, I think we can all agree. We'd all be better off if, uh, you know, we didn't use chemical weapons, so we agreed not to use chemical weapons. Uh, that's an easy one. It's a nice bright line. There are not going to be clear bright lines here, and so there's just a very, very difficult process of figuring out what is going to be the, like, okay, from an international standpoint, uh, military usage of this technology. I don't think it's going to boil down to something as simple as human in the loop, um, but I think it's a conversation people should start having, and they should have it from the perspective of uh, the less we can be adversarial with this technology, the better we're going to be for some of the reasons that I mentioned. So uh, here's my worry, is that everybody who's developing these tools in the West is thinking, what's good for the world? 
And everybody who's developing them in China or North Korea is thinking about what's good for China and what's good for North Korea. Um, and in that dynamic, we don't end up all, all better off, but the Chinese and the North Koreans end up a whole lot better off. Yeah, so I don't think that's an accurate description of the current um, narrative. Um, uh, so I, you know, I, I read a lot of translations of things about AI from China, and I read everything about AI coming out of the U.S. And, and I'm seeing a lot of U.S.-China arms race um, narrative here, and that uh, frightens me. Um, and I'm I'm seeing cooperative overtures uh, coming out of China, not not uh, entirely. I mean, obviously, there's uh, you know a lot of concern about you know which which states going to come out on top and whatnot, and it's unclear whether it's economic or mi- military, uh, and people often deliberately conflate those two contexts. Um, but Tencent recently uh, put out an, like a book on on AI, uh, and there's a chapter on safety. Uh, and you know we you know I've seen a translation, and there are discussions of uh, safety and international coordination and collaboration. I think there are openings here, um, and so I think whenever someone starts shouting, uh, you know, U.S.-China arms race, um, I would like there to be some pushback. Say, hey, this is not inevitable, um, and we shouldn't be leading the charge on on the arms race narrative. Can I can I uh, pivot slightly to uh, my favorite story of the week, uh, in which uh, uh, AI reading contracts for legal issues uh, um, got a score for finding the right issues of in the 90s uh, and 94%. then 94 and then 20 some lawyers uh, read the same contract and got scores that ranged from 93% down to 67% uh, but the AI did it in 27 seconds and the lawyers did it in about uh, uh, 1.25 hours on average uh, uh, which you know billed out at uh, uh, several hundred dollars um, a, and it's clear there's going to be an impact here, and, and uh, you know, uh, reading contracts is something that lawyers think lawyers should do. Um, we're putting lawyers out of work with that, uh, but now that we know that um, AI can read legal material, what if we just programmed into all of these uh, uh, programs something that said, well, you can achieve all these goals, but you cannot violate any law. So read U.S. code. If you've got any questions, you can hire a lawyer and find out the answer, and we'll go to we'll go to court. Uh, but it, it it means that if the machine starts to run into gray areas that it's worried about, uh, or that sorry, uh, areas where it, there seems to be a rule that might prevent it from taking steps it's taking it's proposing to take, it has to go back and explain itself to a human judge. Yep. I mean, this is the line of research that people are currently working on. Um, And and if we had uh, rules that uh, clearly apply to every conceivable situation that humans might find themselves in, we wouldn't have a need for lawyers in the first place. We wouldn't have a need for judges or common law. This is what common law is. Common law is about we have uh, laws that apply to novel scenarios and someone needs to use some sort of principled common sense interpretation of them. Um, and so we're always going to have those gray areas. I think those gray areas are going to be much bigger for, for systems that uh, don't think the way humans think. Um, but this is what the human feedback um, safety uh, you know, research agenda is all about doing, figuring out how to uh, have systems that kind of know what the rules are, whether they're legal rules or other rules, um, and know when to ask for guidance when they're not sure. Okay, I'd like so to... Would, would the argument be that we could basically have an AI autonomous weapon system be programmed with the laws of armed conflict, as Stuart is saying, and then the entity would be able, before it would fire, it would apply the laws of armed conflict and make a decision based on those parameters, and we would then be reducing the number of uh, JAG officers required in going, being forward deployed when we project force. Do you see that as a plausible world, uh, Michael? Well, like I said, Three thoughts to that. Um, um, One is uh, the laws of war are far more vague than the laws that govern the way people do, you know, commerce in the U.S. Uh, I mean, the the, the notion of formalizing proportionality or like military necessity is is pretty laughable from from an AI perspective. Um, And so I I don't think you could get that far doing that. Um, So it's a much, much harder task. a second point is uh, concern about uh, a, something called adversarial examples. Um, this is maybe a rabbit hole actually not worth going into, so maybe I'll, I'll put a pin in that, but there are some interesting military analogs. Um, and then the third is the point that uh, 
even if you could do this technically, we're, we're back to this problem of ratcheting up the amount of adversarialness in the world, which I think is going to ultimately be short-sighted from everyone's perspective. Uh, and so I would say uh, use AI less in a military context wherever possible. Let's try to lead the charge on that. Uh, a really quick question here at the end, which is uh, this is a disruptive technology, and some predictions have indicated that this could cause up to 70 to 90 percent unemployment in the United States alone. Uh, we are a country that does not have a national education program that focuses on STEM. Uh, what do you think about these things, and what are your thoughts generally on how this in and of itself could destabilize our national security? Yeah. Um, so the, you know, the, I guess there are two related points there. One is about technological unemployment. The other is about STEM education. Um, I, I think you cannot intelligently make policy involving AI unless you understand AI. And this is a huge problem right now. Uh, the people in, in government, people who are thinking, people who have policy backgrounds don't have AI backgrounds. We need more people with both of those things. And I think if you don't have an AI background, make friends who do, try to obtain one, or don't make AI policy. Uh, uh, p point two, um, I think going forward, uh, there are going to be a lot of opportunities for people to understand this technology to do useful work in the economy, and we need to find ways to give other people opportunities to obtain those skills. Um, and so I think, yes, I am strongly for better STEM education. I think, you know, we should go out into the boondocks. I'm from North Dakota. I want everyone in North Dakota to know how to code. I think this is how kids are going to be okay tomorrow. Uh, I also think we're going to we're going to make more wealth. So there's, it's not like we're going to you know there are other uh, ways to ensure that you know the, the outcome uh, is fairly equitable and people are okay, um, other than uh, you know certain jobs coming and going. So Michael, I we as we're finishing up, we traditionally ask our guests if they've got any public events or reports or other uh, uh, things that they'd like the listeners to be aware of. Uh, you got anything you want to plug? Uh, no. Uh. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, you know, there's no pressed. obligation. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I'll, uh, uh, I'll let Elisa uh, uh, provide her usual uh, um, uh, outgoing uh, remarks. Well, I just want to say to all of you out there, if you're thinking about life in a skiff or working in a skiff and handling national security law, and you don't mind constant deprivation of vitamin D, then you should join us next time on National Security Law Today. And I have to say, you know, look, um, if constant deprivation of vitamin D is the key to Elise's good looks, uh, you should all start uh, uh, practicing national security law. Uh, thanks to Elisa. Thanks to Harvey Rishikoff. Thanks to Susan Esserman, Maury Shank, Jim Lewis, Jamil Jaffer, and especially to Michael Page. Uh, I, uh, it's been a pleasure. This has been episode 209 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. The Cyber Law Podcast is seeking a part-time intern uh, to work work uh, entirely on things podcasty. So if you're interested, uh, uh, go to the uh, steptoe.com webpage and see if you can find under careers the uh, description of the uh, position we're trying to fill. I'm sure if you are patient, you will find it, uh, though I never can. Um, uh, and if you have a guest interview to suggest, um, a, and uh, uh, we put the person on the air, uh, we will send you one of our coveted uh, uh, Cyber Law Podcast mugs. Uh, uh, so send those suggestions to uh, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. And then uh, we hope you will join us for those and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.